Hi. Welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present, on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes, where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. In the 18th century, as well as the 21st, it's the outermost layers of a woman's ensemble that get the most noticed. For a colonial woman, however, the intimate engineering of stays and corsets was as important to her appearance as any fine fabric or lace. Joining me now to talk about fashions, both seen and unseen, is Brooke Wellborn, who is a journeywoman milliner and mantua maker, which is the first time I've ever heard the term journeywoman. It, the term journeywoman is something that gets used only um, in the trades usually dominated by women, like millinery and mm -hmm. mantua making. Any other trade, you'd hear journeyman. Mm -hmm. um, and also in those trades, um, you hear mistress of the trade, um, you hear shop woman. Um, they're very gender specific because they were done almost always by women. If a man was going to practice the trade, he'd have to be a man milliner or a man mantua maker. Things like stays and corsets were actually historically made by men for centuries and centuries. Um, the stain-making trade comes out of the tailoring trade in the 17th century. And it's not until the late 18th century that you actually find women making stays for themselves, for mm -hmm. other women. Um, part of that, the thought of that is stays are a very rigid bodice that women are wearing. They have to be boned with wood or baleen. And the channels are very small. You have to cut the baleen down to a certain size, insert it into the channel, and it's hard work. Uh, I've done it a couple times. I prefer to have someone else do it for me <laughs> because it is. And then you have to bind the garment in leather. Um, it's a very difficult process and very labor intensive. And so it's mostly done by men for women. So I, clearly, I do not understand stays and corsets because I always thought stays were softer and cloth, and and corsets were bone and quite rigid and laced up and not comfortable to wear. The real difference between those two garments is actually the time that they were used. Um, this, the word stays usually refers to a boned bodice that was used in the 17th and 18th centuries and then is then replaced in the 19th century with a corset. Mm -hmm. um, the garments are shaped differently. The stays gave more of a conical shape, broader at the chest and narrower at the waist, while the corsets give more of an hourglass shape. Mm -hmm. um, so with actual curves to them, and they just reflect the look of what the people wanted on the outside. If you want a very smooth bodice to the gown, you need a very smooth undergarment. If you want a naturally curved shape, you need a garment that, that gives that to the person. Okay, so the, the, the term wasp waist actually refers to a corset and not a stay. Generally, but you do sometimes see that term showing up in the 18th century. In both the 18th and 19th century, there was an extreme fashion for lacing the stays or the corsets tight. But most people are not following those extreme fashions. They're still wearing stays or corsets, but most women work, whether it's in a shop or around their home. And it's really hard to work day in and day out in extreme dress, in something that's really tight and binding. But stays would still be worn by working women because it is the only support garment at the time, mm -hmm. um, supporting not only their chest but their back. Um, but certainly in the 18th century, you do see the term wasp waist once in a while showing up. And they make fun of the ladies. There's some very famous satirical prints showing women holding onto bedposts, being laced in tight by three people, with a <laughs> monkey pointing to a piece of paper that says fashion victim, a satire. So certainly that's not the, the normal thing that most women were doing, but it did exist. Working in your shop, for instance, mm -hmm. stays would be 
what you would wear on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. I have a pair on right now. And there were different kinds of stays. Some of them were fully boned, where every single inch of the bodice had boning, edge to edge. Then there's some that are half boned, like mine, where the front is fully boned. But when you get to the sides, there's some spaces. Some were so lightly boned that they might only have six strips in them. So those would be much easier for someone to work in. But they'd still have something on. They wouldn't go without stays altogether. Uh, the term, a loose woman, in the 18th century refers more to someone who's not wearing stays because she's completely loose with no okay. support. That's something else I didn't know. So a loose woman was actually just a woman who was not properly undergarmented. In the 18th century, uh, In yes. the 18th century. When you're in the shop working and guest comes in, what normally do they ask you about female dress from the 18th century? I think one of the most common questions we get is, what would a typical 18th century woman have in her wardrobe? How much clothing would she have? And that's a really hard question to answer because we really don't know. Um, most 18th century women didn't sit down and write in their journal, I have this many dresses with this many pairs of shoes. It'd be great. Some of them did, a few of them, but most of them didn't. Sadly, most inventories um, for women um, that take it at their death don't list every piece of clothing. They sometimes will just give a lump sum of what the clothing was worth. Um, we have a little bit here and there. Um, but we can tell people that you know, clothing, um, the clothing trades made up a large business in the city. Fabric was imported from England in incredible amounts. Um, and there were about eight or nine different styles of dress available that women could choose from. And so it would be up to the woman to decide depending on where she lived and what she did and how much she wanted to spend. Certainly people were spending more than they perhaps should have in the 18th century, ah, just like today. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. Wouldn't that depend, to a degree at least, on where in society you were? Certainly not in every degree. I mean, the mistress of a plantation is probably going to have some really formal evening wear, some mm -hmm. fancy ball gowns, where the farmer's wife doesn't really need that. But what the women wear on, to church on Sunday or when they go shopping in the city, those fashionable everyday clothes they might be a little bit closer in wardrobe to each other at those times. Um, well, what, what would determine what sort of wardrobe a woman had? Um, I think some, it depends on where she lives. People in the city mm -hmm. tend to many times have a much more fashion-conscious wardrobe than people living in the middle of nowhere on a farm. There's certain much the same Yeah, story. there's certain styles that they're just not going to need. Um, so you're more likely to find a farmer's wife having plain fitted gowns um, that are appropriate for working in, probably in, in linens and wools and cottons. She's not really going to need a lot of silk. Um, she's probably not going to need the newest fashionable hat or cloak of the season, um, while someone who's a little bit more um, socially active might find the need to have um, those kinds of things. So what you had in your wardrobe would depend not as much on who you were as it would on what you do. Exactly. Um, you sometimes find that someone who's doing a lot of traveling might have specific clothing for traveling, or someone who's going riding has a riding habit, while someone else might want one of those but decide that's not a good way to spend my money because I'm not actually going to do those activities. I'll spend my money on clothing that makes more sense for what I'm actually doing mm -hmm. on a daily basis. It might mean that someone could buy a lot more clothing um, at a lower price because they're buying simpler styles and less fabric 
and they don't have to, you know, budget for more complicated pieces of clothing which cost more. You are a, a journey woman in the millinery shop. There would be young women who would be you in the 18th century because that's the way the business kept going. Would you have to dress better in your shop than a young woman your age outside just as sort of an advertisement? Certainly. You, certainly you do see that happening. Mm -hmm. um, there's many images of milliners and mantua makers and if the, the title on the print didn't say, you know, the pretty mantua maker, you wouldn't know. She looks just like her fashionable customers. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't want to dress too nice or the customers are going to think that you're perhaps charging too much for the, the goods. <laughs> um, <laughs> Over-advertising, yes. as it were. <laughs> yes, but there was an expectation that you would probably be well-dressed if you're working in a shop like that. How long before, <clears throat> as a journey woman, you would have the possibility of having your own shop? Well, it really depends on if you have any of your own money um, because you would need um, a certain amount of money. A small amount if you just wanted to go open a shop where you made things for people out of fabric they brought to you from somewhere else. But if you wanted to be a shop milliner and have imported fashionable goods, you need a couple hundred pounds, which you're not going to save up in just a couple years of working for someone else. You'd have to have some kind of dowry that can be used to to invest in that business. So a lot of journey women are just going to work for someone else. 200 pounds in the 18th century was a ton of money, wasn't it? People in the, 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 the trades, though, were making a bit more. A journey woman, milliner, or a mantle maker, her first year might be making 25 to 30 pounds a year and getting room and board. So oh. she doesn't have to worry about her housing or her food or even maybe her laundry. Oh, that's um, right. So yeah. One reason to go into the trades is because you're going to make more money in a trade than, than doing unskilled labor. The millinery and mantua making trades are newer trades in the 18th century, and so they're not established an, under any guilds really in England, and so you don't have the apprenticeship length having to be seven years like a lot of other trades. You do find women apprenticing to those trades for shorter periods of time. Their parents might have to pay them more money, but they're able to get into, the, into being a journeywoman a, a lot faster. That's Colonial Williamsburg past and present this time. Let us know what you think about the show. Submit your feedback at www.history.org slash podcasts. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download it here.